but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I am them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, who you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. My gracious God and Father, I pray that you would protect our ears and that you would guide my lips that nothing that would be said uh, would be of error that would lead astray that would cause consternation but lord that every word that is spoken today might be uh, true and faithful to your word so that in the hearing we might be hearing your voice and we pray this to the praise of your glory in jesus name amen i want to look at this portion of Jesus' prayer through a four-part lens borrowed from Michael Horton. Now, many of you have heard me use this again, uh, before, but I find it helpful. So just mark these words and we'll define them. In Scripture, or Scripture itself, uh, is, a, is a drama. It's a story. And from this drama, we glean, we, we understand through the events and the words that are spoken, doctrine and this doctrine should lead us to worship and to doxology and praise and thanksgiving and flowing from that doxology doxology from our worship uh, it should lead us to discipleship so that we are actually doing with god's help his work in the world but drama we simply mean a story or more precisely a story within a story in other words, beginning with Adam, to Moses, to David, to uh, Zacchaeus, to the feeding of the 5,000, we have all of these uh, stories, but they're contained in an overall story, the story of redemption. <clears throat> Maybe it's helpful to think in terms of mankind, which includes us, within the greater context of God's story of redemption. Whether mankind acknowledges it, or not, <clears throat> every human being's story is part of the tapestry of the sovereign God's plans and purposes in the world. It includes all places, all peoples, all events, all truth, every, every battle that's fought, every person who dies. It's all within this over overarching compass of redemptive history. Now, many people, the second part uh, of uh, this uh, paradigm is doctrine. 
And many people shut down when they hear the very word doctrine. Don't shut down. <laughs> I beg you. Listen to the voice of the living and merciful God as he speaks to his people in Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 3. He says, Give ear, O you heavens, and I will speak. O hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as a small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. This is from the Song of Moses, and he goes on to describe the history and the, and the waywardness of these people, but the faithfulness of God. This is quoted from the King James Version because it translates the word teach as doctrine. Doctrine, if you look up the Hebrew word, you're going to find it means to instruct. It means to teach. So uh, there's no, we like good sound teaching, right? Uh, we like teaching that's faithful to the word of God. And we should embrace and we should cherish teaching the doctrines that we find in the word of God. I just wanted to get back up and notice that the, the language, the imagery we find there, it should be to our thirsty souls, our weary and dry bones, uh, a salve. It should be nourishment. It should be soothing to hear the voice of the living God in his truths, in his doctrine, in his teaching. Recognizing that we're talking about a star story not only written by God, but orchestrated by him, we believe that he is telling us something about himself and our relationship to him as both our creator, our God, our Lord, our master, our king, the owner of this world, and our redeemer, the redeemer of sinners, and as the restorer who will take things and make them all new again. Let me assure you that uh, I've heard again and again don't give me doctrine, just give me something practical. I'm not sure what people mean by this, so I looked up what, what the dictionary means by practical, and I came up with this. Of or concern with the actual doing or use of something rather than with theory and ideas. Let me say that again. It's the concern with actual doing or the use of something rather than theories or ideas. Let me assure you that the teaching of our triune God is not simply theory. And it's not just ideas. They are the tapestry, the weaving together of stories that are God's self-revelation to us. I hear again people say, well, you know, it all is assumed in, in love, but how do we find love? I was in a Bible study. And someone made this comment. Don't give me doctrine. All we need is love. I said, well, what kind of love? What does love look like? What does love feel like? How do you define love? What's the love of God? What's the love of man? What's the love of self? You don't know. We don't know these things apart from the word of God and good sound doctrine. The actual doing for the disciple of Christ begins with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, 
And flowing out of that will be, by extension, will be loving your neighbor as yourself, or even so far as to love your enemies. Sisters and brothers, this is doxology from the heart and not just from the lips. Jesus, on one occasion, quotes from Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. This is an interesting word, doxology. It's passed down to us from uh, medieval Latin, uh, doxologia, uh, which in turn comes from the Greek doxa, meaning opine or opinion or glory. And I'm going to emphasize the part that says glory. And the suffix logia, which refers to the oral or written expression. We have a liturgy. We have things written down. We read from the scriptures. This is our doxology, our praise. When we come together, it's written. But that praise is worthless, according to Christ, if it does not come from the heart. The doctrines and the teachings or the teachings of man by man can never do in the heart what the doctrines or the teachings of God by God, through God, the Son, and by God, the Holy Spirit, can do in our heart. That's why we pray. Uh, we pray for God to send his Holy, the Holy Spirit sent us. He's, he's among us, and we pray, Lord, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, not the man in the pulpit, but the Holy Spirit to teach us your word. It is out and only out of a heart filled with thanksgiving and praise and adoration does one become a true disciple. So Jesus said to those who believed, and this is in John chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. We abide in his word, and his word abides in us. And the administrator and teacher of that word, the one who puts it into practice in our lives, and, and is the work of the Holy Spirit. In John 8:32, he says, And you will know the truth in this word, and it will set you free. Free. On another occasion, they said to the Pharisees said to him, What must we do to be doing the work of God? And Jesus answered them, This is, this is the actual doing, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes that's work. That takes discipline. That takes energy. It doesn't just happen when trials and tribulations and the sorrows of life come upon us. It's only when we have hid his word in our hearts and we walk by the light of it and the lamp of it that uh, we can find any spiritual success. So that leads us to today's text. The drama or the story began in chapter 13. We're not going to go back through it again. But you remember, they met in the upper room to celebrate the Passover. And how dramatic. The Lord takes off his garments and he wraps himself in a towel and he goes around and he washes the disciples' feet. Why? As an example to him. It was a teaching lesson. He is giving them sound doctrine of what it looks like to minister within the church. At the end of that, he doesn't illustrate, but he simply says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. With a promise 
that in this the world will know that you are my disciples. It has an evangelistic outreach to it. In that upper room, we have betrayal. We have uh, the promise of desertion. Uh, all of these things. How dramatic, if you want to call it a dramatic, can a story be that transpired? And then we have Jesus teaching. We call it the upper room discourse. And we went through some of the things that he taught the last time we were together. It was coupled with, to use a modern term, Q&A. These disciples had questions. They didn't understand. And so they asked him, and Jesus gently and lowly taught them uh, what he was about and what was about to take place. So we have this dramatic story. We have events that shifts to Jesus pouring out of his heart to his Father in prayer, lifting up his eyes into heaven and praying to his Father. What do you do, or what would you pray for on the eve of your torture and execution? We don't see ourselves, and we don't know like Jesus did, who was a prophet, priest, and king. We don't know what are our lives are leading. We have to walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. But Jesus had an awareness of who he was and where he had come from and what his mission was. Like, repeatedly in this chapter he says the father sent me the father sent me the father sent me for the beginning we have suggested this prayer that jesus is praying is divided into three distinct yet united parts first we said that he prayed for himself he prayed that the father would restore the glory that he had with the father before he took on human flesh we spoke we've been speaking about this human flesh the weakness of the flesh, the humility that Jesus uh, took on when he adorned himself in flesh. Second, we, list, we listen through the pen of John how he prayed for those his father had given him out of the world. He prayed for the father to keep and to protect them, to sanctify them, to make them holy. In this third portion of the prayer of Jesus, Jesus is praying for us. And all believers and saints who have heard and believed that the Father sent the Son to seek and to save. So what is God teaching us from this part of his prayer? D.A. Carson says in his commentary, the dominant concern is for unity and for divine glory. First, I think our first sermon in this series, we spoke about divine glory. We spoke about the glory of God, the significance and the importance of the glory of God. The pattern for unity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The basis for unity is the abiding in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit abiding in us. The purpose of the unity is the manifestation of God's glory. We can't begin to expound all of this this morning, but it's clear to us there's something glorious or should be glorious in our hearts and minds about the triune God. It should be clear from the first two sections of the prayer that the Son never, ever acts apart from the Father and by the power of the Spirit. Truly, this prayer is Trinitarian. I emphasize this, why? Because Jesus emphasizes this. This is what he's teaching. 
You, you only have to, a, a casual reading, I and me and me and you, and it's, it's this combination. He's praying to the Father. They're active in this work. Jesus emphasizes this throughout his ministry and emphatically in this prayer. Why is it important? Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are teaching who they are, who God is. If we are not worshiping the triune God, then we're not worshiping the true God. And when we separate or segregate or minimize or exalt one person of the Godhead over the other, we are doing an injustice to the, to our, the God that we serve. Let me just read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 2, section 3. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. You know, something a little easier to remember. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says, We may define the doctrine of the Trinity as follows. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. If we don't believe this, if we don't teach this, if we don't hold this, we may as well join the Muslims uh, in their mono God. We have a triune God. Okay, to our text. If you want to look at verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want to begin by defining the these. We know who the those are, the those are the disciples. The these, these are also, along with the disciple, those that were given to the Son by the Father. In Isaiah 53.10, the prophet says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. In Psalm 22, the psalmist says, A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, and that he has done this. It is by the work of the Holy Spirit that we believe we are born by incorruptible seed, the word of God planted in our hearts, giving us, we talked about it this, this morning, a new heart with a new disposition, a heart of love and faith. We can't generate this. This doesn't come from the flesh. This is a gift of God. You see, then I want to notice something else. These, these are they who will believe, just as the disciples believe. What's the difference? They will believe the word of God, not directly from Jesus, but from Jesus' disciples. What a gift that we have, that you have, that I have, to take the very words of God 
from the scripture and shared with other people. God's word is creative. When he says, let there be light, there is light. Light. And when he says, through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, through preaching or teaching or sharing, uh, let there be life, there is life in the heart of those in the world around us. What do you notice? Jesus not, does not say that they will believe through your word, but through their word. Do you see how this work, God's word, became flesh? For it indwells the God-man Jesus. Now Jesus' disciples have known, received, and believed that word so that it is within them. What did we read? Jesus says, if my word abides in you, then you are truly my disciples. You may be asking, where do you find this in the story? My answer is that you don't. <laughs> but we should never forget that, just, <clears throat> that this, is, this story is just a portion of the greater story. And so the doctrines that we glean from here are filled in. The meat is put on the skeleton from other portions of Scripture. That's why it's important that we don't isolate one Scripture from another Scripture as if it has a voice of its independent of everything that surrounds it. We want, to, we want to hear, we want to know the whole counsel of God. We want to know how it all fits together to the glory of God. We're just defining those, but we'll continue with two more points of clarification. These, but two more points of clarification. Notice what it says here. Those who will believe. Okay? What does that teach us? I've seen the story. It's part of the narrative. They will believe. Jesus prays with confidence and certainty that there will be others according to the promises of God. The church has not been collected together. Not all believers have been brought in. And so Jesus is praying for these and praying for us uh, through Jesus' prayer with confidence and certainty. He still prays. Though he knows his Father is sovereign, he still employs the ordinary means of prayer. I jumbled that up a little bit trying to read it. What I'm saying is we often ask the question, well, if God is sovereign, why pray? Jesus, who was sovereign, was praying to the sovereign God with all confidence and certainty that his prayers would be answered. One, he had an advantage over us because he knew exactly what the will of the Father was. He never spoke a word. He didn't pray apart from the will of God. But we can know what the will of God is. It's in his word. There, there are things that are truth, and we can pray with certainty if we find ourselves immersed in God's word. Jesus has confidence in the effectualness of his disciples' word. Why? Because they have heard, known, and received and believed his word. God's word, we said, is creative. It is effectual. I think Charlie was praying in the Sunday school from Isaiah. He says, it, it, I probably have it in my notes here, that where God sends forth his word, it will not return void, but it will accomplish his purposes. We should pray believing that our prayers are a part of God's sovereign will. Prayer is bigger than us. We pray with a little faith, or maybe a middle-sized faith, or a great big faith. I don't know, but ultimately it depends upon the sovereign God who answers and works in those prayers. 
We should speak the words of God after him, knowing that they are effectual. This is where I knew I had it in here somewhere. They will not come back void, but they will accomplish God's purposes where he sends them. That they, okay, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the believer is not just among themselves, but a union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't ask me how this works. I cannot tell you any more about how the eternal, everlasting Spirit of God indwells us. But I believe it because that's what God has taught us in his word. Any more than I can tell you how there are three persons in the Godhead, distinct but yet one God. But we believe because the Holy Spirit has taught us. <clears throat> we do know this. We call it the new birth. Jesus has earlier taught his disciples, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you... <clears throat> I do not speak on my own initiative. There's a lot here, don't you? He says, the words that I'm speaking, they're not my own initiative. But notice this. But the Father abiding in me does his work. And we're speaking about the humanity of Christ, but Christ is saying, even as I'm here on the earth, I'm not doing my own will, but I'm doing the will of the Father, and the Father is in me, and the Father is doing his work through me. So it's not our work, but it's the work of the Father. It's the work of the Son. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we should long for that awareness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Spirit working on us and in us and, and through us. Time and again, Jesus repeats to them that the Father has sent him into the world to do his works. Later, after the resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. On a final note, concerning the unity of the believers with God and each other, this unity will be, should be, observable and convincing. What I'm saying is, if you love one another, if the world sees, and it should be able to see our unity. The church, with its many schisms and divisions and denominations, does not accurately reflect, reflect the reality that the Holy Spirit has bound all believers of every division, every denomination, into one body, the body of Christ. And we are members of that body, both in heaven and here on earth. Returning to our text, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be even one as we are one. I am them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent and loved them even as you love me. You have loved them, even as you have loved me. I don't know how. 
I don't know if there's anything I can add to that. God the Father. Jesus is saying to God the Father, you have loved me. And he's preaching, for, he's speaking and praying for the whole church, not just his disciples. So he's praying, he's, he's saying this. As you sit there in your seat, as I stand here in this pulpit, Jesus is saying, Father, you love them, him, her, even as you love me. That's beyond comprehension. There's several distinct but inseparable themes here. We don't have time to develop each doctrine, but let me just say, there's glory, union, perfection, and what I mean by that, completion. He's praying that they may be completed. We're not done yet. We're just half-baked. Some of us more than maybe not quite half-baked. But God is at work. That's the promise of Paul. He that has begun a work in you will complete it. I'm going to begin with then there's the theme of love that we just talked about and witness. The witness. The world should see in us and through us and by our love for each other the love that's in the Father. We are constantly in the work. We our sanctification and our growth is a work in progress. All I will say concerning the I in them and you and me is to point us to the essential work of the Holy Spirit. And I say essential, but critical, essential, necessary work of the Holy Spirit. This is just one text of many from which the doctrine, we develop a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illumines, the Holy Spirit produces his fruit in our lives, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, the Holy Spirit uh, binds us and baptizes and unifies us with each other in, in Christ. Yet God has highly exalted him. Excuse me. His glory. Okay, I don't, I don't want to skip this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Just what does that mean? Glory. Honor. Now we look around here and you know, I don't even have a star on the refrigerator. I don't have a badge of honor or a crown or anything. If I look at it, you know. And yet he has given us his glory. Just exactly what does that mean? Well, it may not mean, it's in two parts. Let me put it that way. I'd use the word eschatological, but uh, I'm not sure I would do justice to it. But it's in two parts. It's the here, right now, and the then, yet to come. In the realm of Jesus' time on earth, through his death, most would say along with Isaiah, he hath no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We gave him no honor. What the world gave him was shame and ignominy of the cross. His glory was the glory of the cross. And his disciples now in time and space will take up, we will take up our cross and follow him even if we're despised by the world. And our brother was sharing his new job and how he is being despised by someone in the world. Yet, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, a reputation, an honor, 
that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's that word, to the glory of God. Just as the Father has given him an earthly and a heavenly glory, Jesus shares his glory with us, just as he shares his righteousness with us. I had two, I could have gone on. I wanted to go back to Ezekiel chapter 16, where you see the people of God dead, laying in an open field. God comes by with compassion and he cleans it up and puts jewels and decks it out and dresses and he says, I have made you comely with my beauty. How much more the church, when we read in Ephesians, it says Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it, that he might, what? Cleanse it and Make it spotless and without wrinkle and present it to himself. And then we could go to uh, Revelation chapter 19 when we see the wedding of the Lamb in heaven and the adornment of the church. This is what we long for. This is what we look for. Let me just finish up. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We believe, we believe God answers prayer. He certainly answers Jesus' prayer. This prayer is done. It's, it's certain. This is going to happen. We will be with him in glory and we will behold his glory oh i missed it i don't know where it is oh here it is and we shall see him in his glory and the seeing will be transformational transformational the transformation will be glorious even now the difference the spirits makes in the life of believers is glorious so there is the glory of creation there is the glory of redemption and there is the glory of our union with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He loved him before the foundation of the earth. We don't have time. But it's talking about foreknowledge, and it's talking about election. Those words that strike fear in some. Uh, oh, my, what did I say here? The doctrine of election and the doctrine of uh, foreknowledge are not for the purpose of distress. They're not for the purpose of debate. And yet there's a lot of debate that goes on, heated debate. But they are for the purpose of delight. That we might delight in the love, the unwarranted love. He set his love on us because he freely set his love on us. We have nothing to, to warrant it, but God in his free sovereign grace loves us. Those, perhaps the most comforting yet distressing statement in this whole passage, <clears throat> when held in isolation, is distressing. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you. Even though the world does not know you. I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Earlier he says they know you. They are known by you. I say it can be distressing because sometimes we don't know. Or is he talking about me? 
Am I the these? Am I the seed of Christ? Or I'm a part of the world that doesn't know him? Let me give you good news. Here's the open invitation to anyone who will believe in him, he will give eternal life. You want to be his? Say, Father, by your grace, I am yours. Believe that. Because that's a work of the Holy Spirit. These are the words that are comforting to those who know the Father has sent him, and he will continue to make him his love known. His, his job in heaven, his job this morning is to continue to make the Father and himself and the Holy Spirit known to us. And this is eternal life, we're, that you know the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. If you're not sure what all this means, feel free to ask one of the elders or anybody in the church. I'm not sure. This is, this is foreign to me. I, I'm, I don't know who's out there in cyberspace. But this is for all of us, that we come together and we preach the gospel to one another so that we might have assurance of our faith. I can only trust that the Lord has protected us from error and given us sound teaching, that by the Spirit, He will prompt us now to doxology, not only in word, but in deed. All right, if you take your hymnals and turn with me to 195. Oh, this is a... <laughs> 